Welcome to The Beacon, your connection to nonprofit success. Now here's your Lighthouse Council host. Hello, and welcome to The Beacon Podcast. I'm Ryan Warnicky, your host for today's discussion with David Lawson, co-founder and CEO at Call Simulator, an AI-powered call center software. He is also the son of Doug Lawson, a fundraising icon who passed away in 2020. Today, uh, we're here to pay homage to Doug and hear from his son about his noteworthy impact on fundraising as we know it today. Uh, Dave also ran a number of successful companies uh, in the nonprofit sector before venturing into uh, Call Simulator. Um, Lighthouse Council President Jeff Jowdy spoke with Doug, Dave's father, in an episode of the Beacon podcast in January 2020 titled, How Giving Changes the Lives of Givers. We'll include a link to that when the episode is posted. Dave, thanks so much for being here with us today. Oh, it's great to be here. And I'm sure my dad enjoyed that podcast. He, he passed away at the end of 2020, so I'm glad he got to do that. Uh, we, we were very lucky uh, to have him, and, and thanks again for joining us today. So, David, many people talk about change management, and Doug was in the middle of one of the biggest foundational changes this country has ever seen, integration. Specifically, he was in the middle of integrating the U.S. higher ed system uh, at, at Randolph-Macon. So can you share how he helped to integrate Randolph-Macon and any valuable change management lessons our listeners can take away from that? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting story uh, because it really began uh, when he left uh, Randolph-Macon as a graduate and went to Drew University uh, to get his divinity degree. And a couple of things happened at Drew. One, um, he obviously married my mom and my older brother. I wasn't born yet. And so they went up there, they were in family housing and across the hall was an interracial couple. And you got to remember this 1950s. And my parents were from uh, Newport News in Norfolk, Virginia, and they got to be very good friends. So that was one. But they also began to get some of the experience that would happen for an African-American and for an interracial couple some of the animosity that they got to witness. The other thing that happened was one of his professors, Professor Kelsey, taught Christian ethics and so social justice. Well, turns out before he was at Drew, he was at Morehouse and he was one of Dr. King's most influential professors and actually is credited with guiding Dr. King to the ministry and to use that for social change. So my dad, clearly internalized a lot of this and was really inspired. I think part of it too was moving from the South up to New Jersey. So then he was across the river from New York. And I think their first play was My Fair Lady in the late 50s. So so he comes back from there and becomes the first chaplain at Randolph-Macon. Then he becomes the Dean of Men. And that's when he talked to the president about, we need to integrate. So this is in about 65, actually integrated in 1966. But also my dad at that point then became the first vice president for development. And back then there weren't a lot of those. Right. So this arc. And so the president says, well, okay, like your idea, but you're going to manage this. 
So my dad went into Richmond, Virginia, because Randolph-Macon's in Ashland, Virginia, a suburb of, of Richmond, went to Virginia Union and found the two most academically qualified rising juniors, because you couldn't fail academically. Obviously, this was going to be incredibly hard on whoever said yes. Two men said yes. One actually decided no. And I can't really blame him because it was really hard when when uh, uh, it was actually Hayward Hap Payne is his name came. I mean, the racial animosity slurs and it wasn't just students. It was professors, administrators. It, it was brutal. This is 1966. But Pap persevered, and he actually went on not only to graduate, but a very successful career with Chevron, came back to serve on the board twice at Randolph-Macon. But I think the, the biggest thing, one, I think my dad, because of what he learned, social justice, interestingly, when he left Drew, he went to Duke. That's where I was born, at Duke Hospital in 1961. That's the year that the graduate school at Duke was integrated. Undergraduate wasn't integrated till 1963. So my dad just sort of had these moments where he was in the moment, and then he had a moment to be the change himself. So I would say one thing is learn <laughs> from those who understand change and, and have done change, and then seize the moment when you're given that moment. And he did. Now, the other thing that happened was because he did that, so remember this is 1966, so 1968, Dr. King's assassinated, the race riots happen. Well, John Gardner forms the Urban Coalition, and he's looking for fundraisers around the country. And my dad, being the VP for development, but also known as the person who helped manage the integration, he's offered a position. My parents at that point were divorced, so my dad moved to D.C., well, one of the other fundraisers that was recruited was Walker Williams, an African-American man. And he and my dad formed Lawson and Williams. So think about that. 1969, you have a black and white man, men forming a firm. And they went on to do some wonderful things. In fact, the last time I saw my dad a face was on the 50th anniversary of that firm. So in 2019, you know, thank you, COVID, for not being able to see him later. But so I would say the biggest thing about change management, you know, seize your moment, seize your moment, but learn as much as you can, because those moments are very hard. Yeah, yeah. Because he had experienced it before and frankly, other societal instances of integration, such as living across the hall from what you could call an illegally interracial couple uh, at that time, because interracial marriage was not yet legal. He was able to learn along the way so that when the moment came, the, the change management itself was easier. Well, yeah. And he, you know, that the thing I will say with, with my dad is that he just so often took on campaigns that were not, they definitely weren't the easy campaigns. And I think that was forged out of that time uh, uh, for him. In fact, one of the last cam big campaigns he did was for the largest LGBTQ in Dallas. And Dallas is necessarily wow. a mecca for liberalism, yeah. right? And he did that because Philip Johnson, who my dad was friends with, uh, actually designed that. 
and uh, Phil Johnson has also done the Crystal Cathedral, uh, which I got to see as a model <laughs> as a wow. kid. And, but, and now I look back and I realize it was Philip Johnson who brought it. And so I, I, I did, I guess, meet him <laughs> with, with the model of the Crystal Cathedral. But, you know, again, it would have been so much easier for him over the years to take more traditional uh, clients. Even of all things, if you go to Broadway and you get a 50% off ticket, my dad raised the money for the theater development fund. I saw that as a model. That was not liked at the time. There were people who fought that. They thought somehow it would hurt the industry. But again, that's what he, he would, he, what are you talking about? And of course, in many ways, it saved Broadway uh, to fill those seats and definitely elongated a number of the runs. So yeah, I think he just saw the need for change and he just had that personality that could manage that. He was always calm in the storm. Which is a very important uh, trait to have. If you have it, right, you have to work with what you got. But the next question, so Doug, who ran the first ever half billion dollar capital campaign, um, how did he impact what is now the modern capital campaign? And have any of his practices evolved or, or changed? in today's campaign, essentially things that he laid the groundwork for. Yeah, I think, you know, for people who pioneer aspects of a field, probably the gift they get as they get later in life is the things that you said that were novel become cliches, Mm, right? mm -hmm. So you got to remember in the 60s, fundraising was very different in the 70s. It was very institutional based. Right. So you did proposals to foundations and government. I can remember as early as I can remember him talking about fundraising. You know, people give to people, not to institutions, that it was it's a people business always. So it didn't matter what you were doing. Right. It was going to come down to your ability to connect. And so one of the things about him, he realized early on that a lot of uh presidents of colleges, founders of organizations were not very good askers. They were great Mm. storytellers. They could tug at your heart. They were passionate. But when it came to the close, they just flaked. They just couldn't. They panicked. And my dad just knew how to do that. And so one of the unique things about him was he would actually go on the calls. And this was controversial. Because a lot of fundraisers were like, no, no, you should just kind of manage the campaign, but that's their job. And he never was paid. I mean, he was paid his fee, but it was no contingency, nothing like that. But my dad just realized that when he would send them out there for a million dollar gift, it would turn into a $50,000 gift. Because they would, they'd panic, right? They just didn't know how to, to do it. And so I think his emphasis on that one-on-one, he did a lot of work training people how to do it because at the end of the day he would always say look this is the best thing on the planet to sell right you're you're selling hope yeah. you're selling salvation this shouldn't be so hard don't don't worry about it you're giving the giver the opportunity to get something you're not taking anything from them he would always talk about the wealthy that they could you know the real givers would say i can't give away my money because if i give away my money i go back and i have more money and that's a very biblical you know, kind of kind of thinking. And again, that came back from his roots. I mean, he was a, a minister since he was 18. That's that's when he first was became a minister. So I think that that part that the ask as a center 
piece that in the interpersonal part of it. And it's not just about a case statement and, and a proposal. It was, how are we going to tell our story? How are we going to interact with, with people? I think that was, he was in that kind of group of people who put that forward in that period. And now that just is, you know, how has that changed? I, I would say it, it's not so much it's changed. I, I'd say if I, if I have any disappointment, having been in the identify people to ask, and I think he would share this is I do worry at times that we've gotten too good at getting a lot of money from very few people. And so we see in giving, there needs to be more asking. And you know, one of the other things he used to say to me is he didn't mind the no's because he knew that he was getting closer to the next yes. So he never feared. He loved it. He loved, like, how many calls can I do today? He absolutely loved it. And I think he tried to impart that on other fundraisers, like, just love it. You're in a wonderful profession and do just do more, more, more swings. So, so in, in his case, to recap, right, we go back well over 100 years ago, Charles Sumner Ward invents the thermometer, which kind of shows people, hey, this is the progress at a big level. But the thing that, that uh, your father, Doug, really did was to say, who's responsible for the ask? Let's make sure they really understand this is a beautiful opportunity uh, that they're presenting in, within the context of this broader campaign and the relationship with that donor. And so, hey, senior leadership at the org, you can't be afraid. We got to work with you to make sure that you understand this is good for everybody uh, and, and empower them and as needed, go out with them. And so that's kind of where it started. Now, to your point about it becoming cliche, that is what everyone says, uh, which wasn't necessarily the thing uh, in the, the 60s and 70s when he was just getting started. Well, and I think and I think the way he got people talk about change, you know, be the change. I think people saw the success of those campaigns and the organization. So that, that builds on itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's hard in change. If you're early in the change, there aren't a lot of people around necessarily cheering you on. And there are not a right. lot of people around doing what you're doing. So you can say, well, maybe I'm not doing the right thing. You don't feel the reinforcement. So you have to have a lot of self-confidence. You have to truly believe. But again, now you go back to things like the integration. I mean, he never shied away from things that were not universally popular, that, that were hard. I think he just gravitated to those things. He loved he loved to take a organization like Habitat for Humanity, which had never really done major gifts. They'd done a wonderful direct mail and, and things like that. But he really helped them realize that people would give a million dollars for housing. I mean, there was a time where people thought million dollars only went to higher ed and to medical. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe a church might get something. But the idea that social services, but he was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I can, I'm going to go out and talk about people need homes. And I bet you they'll give, they, they'd agree with me. And, and he found the people who did. That's awesome. That's awesome. So the, the other part then is the story and the belief in that, hey, this is going to work. Um, and then, of course, success begets success. But at the beginning, uh, you know, as a lifelong entrepreneur, um, it's, 
it's tough to go it alone, but when you do, um, it, it can turn into something really beautiful. So the, the last question, uh, Dave, is that Doug always said a great fundraiser is a great giver. And he led by example, leaving numerous bequests, some of which you helped settle. You had the opportunity to help to help settle and deliver those bequests. Now, did any of those organizations do a really good job honoring his legacy and engaging you as his son? And you know, the question here is, which of course you're great at, what is the story? What is it that they did so that our listeners can actually take away and say, oh, these are the kinds of things we should think about when we do this. Yeah, it, and, and that would be another thing I would say to all the fundraisers listening. He was a giver all his life. I remember for Randolph-Macon, he organized his class. You got to remember, he was born in 1936. Not a lot of people born in 1936, right? Depression, all of that. So very small class, but they broke the record for most given by a class at that time. So he'd been a lifelong giver. I, I remember Drew uh, was looking up his record and went, he never missed a year. He never missed a year of giving from the time he graduated till when he died. Uh, but yes, then when he died, he, he of course left the quest and my brother and I um, had the honor of settling those. And so, you know, a couple of, couple of things, Drew, remember I said, going back to the first story, they lived in the family housing. Well, it turns out it's still there. So they sent a picture framed in a Drew frame of that. And so that was really nice. And they honored him in a, a newsletter. So that was great. My dad was a huge Duke basketball fan. And I was born at what was then Duke Hospital. So I'm, I, I'm also a big Duke basketball fan. So they gave my wife, Lori, and I tickets to a game, which my father would absolutely loved because he, he was actually friends with Coach K and did a uh, fundraising for the divinity. So that was sort of a little thing they did for me, right? But what they did for him was they sent a, I just got one, I guess a few months ago, you know, a letter from the scholarship recipient. So he set up scholarships and he's actually set up a couple. In fact, one is actually in the honor of his partner in fundraising, Walker Williams. And now he has one uh, with he and uh, and uh, my stepmom and but you know those letters you know to me the best movie fundraising moment is the last scene in about schmidt when he reads the letter from the kid he had been supporting all that time and it was that kind of letter you know this person talking about the impact and he would have loved it so it sounds like all of the things that were done that were really impactful to you as one of his surviving sons was basically highlighting the things that were important to him while he was alive. And they couldn't have yeah. done that if they didn't know him and know it well and properly track that information somewhere in the system um, so yeah. that they could yeah. follow up on it in a, in a meaningful way. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and I, I think yeah, that I, I would say that's the biggest lesson for fundraisers is what you just said. You know, listen, when we were settling this, they asked us to tell some of these stories. And they listened to that. And I think they shaped the stewardship around that. Because at this point, it was my brother and I. And I give them a lot of credit for that, as opposed to just doing the thing they always did, right? They could have yeah. just sent, like, here's the honorarium with his name, you know, whatever it might have been. But they listened and 
you know, yeah, just uh, my dad, as much as he was a great talker and all that, unbelievable listener. And if if you want to hone any skill, listen. The donor will always tell you why they want to give and don't fight it. And it may surprise you why they want to give. And it may not be the reason that you're passionate about your school or your institution. It may be the strangest thing. Go with it. Go with it. Listen, listen to them and they'll take you on a journey into their life. And the money will flow. Well, those great words, a very valuable lesson. Thanks so much. Uh, That's a great point to end because if all anybody took away was the fact that listening uh, is of the utmost importance, then acting on whatever is said, that's what people should really take away uh, from your father's legacy from a fundraising perspective, if if they can only learn one thing. And there's a lot to learn. Um, but but that said, it, it looks like we've come to the end of our allotted time. So, David, thanks so much uh, for finding time and your very busy schedule to join us and share these insights from your father's life, which was lived so incredibly well. Um, we're, we're really grateful. I'm personally quite grateful that you were willing to share some time. So thank you. Um, any final words as we close? I oh, know, just a pleasure. I miss him. Well, um, thanks again. Uh, to our listeners, you can connect with David on LinkedIn and learn more about Call Simulator at callsimulator.com. Uh, Doug's book, Give to Live, How Giving Can Change Your Life, is available on Amazon. And you can hear Lighthouse Council President Jeff Jowdy's interview by clicking on the link we'll provide when this podcast is listed on the Lighthouse Council website. It is definitely worth a listen. Uh, One final note, um, you can also check out David's amazing wife's work, Lori Hoodlawson, by looking her up on LinkedIn. Um, She's got a great body of work in the sector and uh, like David is now at Call Simulator. Um, So thanks so much for listening. I'm Ryan Warnicke, and we hope to see you next time on the Beacon Podcast. Thanks for listening to The Beacon, your connection to nonprofit success. Tune in every week for nonprofit topics with special guest interviews. Suggest future topics and learn more about upcoming podcasts and guests at lighthousecouncil.com.